Welcome to Happy Times and Places, a positively inclined Doctor Who episode commentary podcast in which I, Toby Haydock, watch a Doctor Who story chosen by a friend of mine and see if I can guess what my special guest's favourite things about each instalment are. Hey, hello, Haydocklings. Uh, my name's Alan Lear and I'm... Uh... Well, I'm sort of an improv comedian and uh, generally just a friend of Toby's. And he's asked me to come along and have a word with you about one of my favourite episodes of Doctor Who for this new podcast that he's doing. Well, I didn't have to think twice about my choice. One of my absolute favourites is The Curse of Fenric. Well, hello and welcome to this commentary for episode two of The Curse of Fenric. My special guest is Alan Lear who is a fabulous fellow, and if ever you need anybody to proofread a book for you, uh, then Alan is the man. Uh, He hadn't actually proofread any of my books uh, when he recorded his contribution to this, which was at the very beginning of that plague we all lived under a while ago. But we've shattered our chains now, and we're back into the real world. And since then, uh, I've... uh, preyed upon Alan's goodwill and he's uh, dotted the I's, crossed the T's and removed unnecessary words or uh, un- uh, in- inaccurately placed pieces of grammar uh, and made hopefully my Quatermass book, volume one of my Quatermass book, uh, readable. Um, he's chosen, I think, you know, one of the undisputed highs of Doctor Who. I know... You know, a lot of old school people. Eighties Who is uh, is incapable of the highs, uh, you know, reached by the series. You know, in in the golden eras of the sixties and seventies, and I, I used to be a bit like that, where anything new was kind of frowned upon. But I have to say, I always liked the Curse of Fenric, and now, of course, I have favourites from sixties, seventies, and eighties Who. Eighties Who is kind of freed from. Uh, the uh, you know guilt by association with having been watched by me when it went out and you know I was well yes I mean this is great but I'm sure the olden days were much better well now it's all the olden days uh, and uh, you know Curse of Fenric soldiers period setting dollops of horror that's that's kind of my kind of who and uh, as I say I, I mean I watched this over and over again as a kid haven't watched it for a while we are watching. The original, the as broadcast version, and uh, as of this episode, because uh, the uh, good people of Patreonville, after I put the first episode out, I sort of mused and went, you know, I should maybe see what Andrew Cartmel says because he did offer uh, to you know contribute to further uh, Sylvester McCoy stories that he had script edited, uh, having chosen himself. Dragonfire as his contribution to Happy Times and Places, which was one of the early ones, released a couple of years ago. Check that out if you haven't. Lots of insight from Andrew. Um, And so I dropped him a line, and so as of this episode, he will be the coder, where I will be... I haven't done the conversation yet, because, of course, I have to watch and choose my favourite thing, and then I have to interview him and see if his favourite thing is either mine or Alan's or neither of ours. So um, that's all in the future now. That's a joy I have to do uh, in my timeline tomorrow morning. But for you, you just have to wait till the end of the episode. But obviously I have to choose 
my favourite thing first because if I listen to what his is, I could just then come back, watch this and go, I think my favourite thing is the third hut from the left, which Andrew said was a place of where he got to hang out and do exciting things. I'm sure the third hut from the left won't be his favourite thing. I can guarantee that now. That's not a spoiler. That's just a guess. Right. Uh, but uh, that's but if I'm to do that, and to do that well, I have to watch the episodes now before I speak to him tomorrow. So before tomorrow is today, uh, I'm going to press play in uh, on, on part two of The Curse of Fenric. Britbox says the Ultima Machine offers to break the chains of the wolves of Fenric, which is what I first knew this story as before it was before it was announced as having a different title. So please do what I'm going to do, which is press play in three, two, one. Um, that's, uh, having read that, uh, that blurb on... Britbox has reminded me, and I'm going to do a confession now. Um, until I read the novel of The Curse of Fenric, I thought it was called The Ultimate Machine. <laughs> I'm afraid so. I have to hold my hands up to that. We all have uh, our, our mishearings, don't we? I'm, sh I'm sure um, Rob Shearman has one in The King's Demons where the Master says... You can't have a proof doctor, and Rob thinks he says the cart. You can't have proof doctor, or the other way around. We all have our ones where we think somebody says a thing, uh, and we can never quite shake it. Well, for me, it was always yeah, it was the ultimate machine. Um, beautiful, uh, beautiful rocks, aren't they? This is a great setting. This beach setting, um, and that's it's little touches like that, isn't it? Very grim, going. No, no, we don't want to make too much noise, um, so we're going to bayonet them, which is, you know, a horrible. A, a visceral sort of thing. It's a bit reminds me a little bit of that bit in Genesis of the Daleks, where they say, you know, instead of uh, these, you know, we we can't afford bullets anymore. So instead of these prisoners being shot, they'll be hanged. You know, there's no need for that to be there, but it just makes this whole business of death a bit grimmer. And I love these these bits that this story has, where you know, quite often in in drama these days, you'd you'd, you'd probably have somebody going, I shall pick up this book and I'm going to read this thing. Uh, but we just we just jump straight into it, and oh, you've got a wonderful uh, actor like Dinsdale Landon, um, uh, and and the, all of this great underwater shooting. And I think this is all this is all really good. Although, oh, yeah, I bet that was cold. Um, uh, and yeah, all of this you don't really know what's going on just at the moment. Why why are these? magic words suddenly appearing but it's all you know it's all mysterious and it's all this whole thing about the viking curse it's it's a bit nigel neely isn't it something from the the ancient past still retains some kind of power uh and it is you know it is there in the stones and uh, that's all very evocative stuff and this is great uh you know the the the, the dead body opening its eyes underwater this is not the sort of thing once expected to see in Doctor Who at this time. So this felt to me like, you know, the show was going through an absolute renaissance of uh, of style, especially when you think about, you know, 
season 24 which was very sort of light end sets and um you know i know what you know we know what they were trying to do and those oddball stories have have a kind of charm to them um but but this this to me felt like what doctor who you know really really should be doing uh he's good this guy the extra playing gaev and this is marek anton uh who I, I remember being quite because uh, my best friend at school was a, a, a young a woman called Catherine, who many years later I married and subsequently divorced. But let's not get into all of that. Um, but I remember um, being, you know, quite chuffed because when when I, you know, had this on when my mates were around because I was trying to convert them all to the ways of Doctor Who, um, that uh, she took a shine to Marek Anton, uh, and as I've discovered since. Um, uh, you know, I think some of the, yes, the, uh, the gay male Doctor Who fan contingent also, uh, you know, are not averse to the charms of Mr. Anton. I suspect he could probably, you know, hoover up some totty of whatever flavour should he go to a, a Doctor Who convention, or should he have gone to one then? But I know they, yeah, and they did, for a while we couldn't actually, nobody actually quite knew where he was, but I noticed Pete, Pete McTie did get him for the, for the, making of on this and phantom films got him for a for a convention so uh, but i think he's back in poland now he did an episode of the paradise club and of course he's the destroyer in battlefield so he had a you know he he, he, uh, he had a good time on doctor who this year before scootling off and doing whatever he ended up doing um this church is much better than having a set isn't it uh, i'm reminded of what alan said in episode one the Use the ultimate machine. No, he says, saying ultimate machine. Um, and it's great. These, the you know, there's the speed of this uh, is fantastic. You know, it's it rattles, and and yet it's even though it's quite speedy, you know, it's atmospheric, uh, and the, and yeah, and the church setting is terrific. Um, and this is a this is a great uh, piece of plotting. They weren't here this morning, and you go, oh, that's a wonderful piece of mystery. And, you know, that's a great riddle, isn't it? How can something be ancient and, um, you know, uh, current? Um, and, oh, yes, and this is, of course, there's a secret, there's a secret base beneath the church. And this is, this is terrific. I mean, this, this, you know, ha having it all on location, uh, can sometimes be, uh, you know, you're, you sometimes have to sort of build sets inside existing buildings and it can look a bit now. I mean, th th there's, a, there's a compromise there because it's pretty obvious uh, where, where he went and these guys are acting their socks off. But uh, Sylvester tapping on the wall to the left is like, no, you, you know it wasn't there because it wasn't that far away. But anyway, it's, uh, yeah, and that, that staging was a little bit phony, the way he sort of does ace and the turn. That's uh, that's an actor that's been told to stand on that spot and do that turn, but that's okay. That's a beautiful shot. And this is a lovely piece of acting from uh, Nicholas Parsons. I remember, you know, when this went out and seeing this bit and going, oh, gosh, no, my, any reservations I might have had about Nicholas Parsons are completely out of the window now. Uh, and... In the special edition, this scene is longer, and I'm not sure it benefits from being longer. Because I think the way that this... Yeah, 
I, yeah, I know. I know it, it adds a little bit of the uncertainty uh, because he because he says that line again. And uh, but I actually think ending on that on that slightly sort of plaintive moment, uh, you know, is absolutely fine. It's very good. And if you don't know about the special edition, I, I certainly don't think that you miss anything. Um, and I always think this is a bit horrible because they yeah they. They uh, they hit a man with a hat, don't they? That's pretty horrible because they have to do this sort of silent and deadly thing. But I never quite, I never quite got what they're doing with Prozorov here because he's quite happy here, saying it's as quiet as the grave. Uh, and then in the next scene, he's all sad about them having to kill everybody. So I, I, I feel the character of Prozorov, who does get, you know, fleshed out a little bit in the book, um, I, 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 and I didn't quite work out because I think he doesn't have enough of. To establish him, I know he's got the bit when he's on the cliff and he says to the girls, "You know, no, you, you know, no closer, please," because he doesn't want to doesn't want to shoot them. I wasn't entirely clear that that was him, and then he was the guy on the beach, and he was the guy who was having. It took me a few times. I watched it a few times. It took me a few times to, to work out which which Russian was which, and uh, and especially I think it's confusing because he seems so chuffed about that massacre that they've just. Uh, just carried out and then he's being all sad you know sad and and uh um captain sorin says you know we have to do these things um so yeah that's that's what i'd probably give another pass if i was uh if i was reassembling this or or you know watching the rushes i'd go we need i think we need to um just be slightly clearer on prosrom it may be just me being stupid uh, peter tchaikovsky who plays him was uh, at Manchester University with Sophie Aldred and where I went too. Um, yeah, see, look, he's just, we've just seen him go, it's as quiet as the road. Oh, and, you know, they are going, yeah, the Sarge likes killing people. He's very good at killing people. But now he's sad about killing people. I, su I suppose, you know, it could have just hit him or, but, yeah, I don't, yeah. I said, oh, you know, watching it now, you're going, okay, yeah, it's clear that he was the guy before. I don't know. It just seems a funny shift uh, to me. Um, churches are great for Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so you've got, you've got Wainwright questioning his faith, which, of course, is a... You know, thing that will have happened a lot during the war to people like him. But of course, faith becomes important to the storytelling because faith is what repels the hemovores. So that becomes a nice little sort of subtext that helps with the plot and helps with the danger, but also informs the character. I mean, Nicholas Parsons is terrific in this. And uh, I mean, I he did. He was always. You know, he, he always did remind people in interviews and stuff. Well, I am an actor, you know, and uh, I've, I know a couple of friends who've sort of mocked him for that. Sort of gone, yeah. So and he was going, oh, well, I am an actor, you know. And you go, well, yeah, I I do kind of get that because when you're <coughs> when mostly what you do is comedy, comedy is rather looked down on in this country, even if you're very good at it. Uh, it, I I think we admire drama drama people more than we admire comedians. Comedians are seen as a bit low and a bit dirty. Um, and, 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 you know, seeking a laugh is not as honourable a pursuit as seeking to move people. I don't know why, because we all need a laugh. Uh, and so I think, you know, a lot of comedians who are actors as well, um, this, 
a physician is healing himself as he's speaking to you. Um, you know, do much prefer the idea, I think, of as being seen as being capable of the serious stuff as well, you know, um, because it's it's seen as somehow more noble and worthy than comedy, which I think, you know, I think says more about us than it than it should. And, you know, Parsons had a had a long and illustrious career as a comic and a, and as a you know presenter of uh, Just a Minute, which is a marvelous, very simple radio idea, uh, and and you know one of the best, one of the best radio panel shows ever. Um, but you know, I'm sure there was part of him that went, you know, but I, you know, I am an actor, uh, and so this, you know, this this is where John Nathan Turner's policy of going, well, let's let's put people who are familiar for some things into other situations, is is you know, is a worthwhile thing to do. I mean, it does sometimes backfire and sometimes it backfires because we're quite limited and we find it difficult to imagine that person doing the thing that we're not used to them doing. But, uh, you know, I think Parsons is one of those who, who passes with flying colours. I love this scene. Um, I think, I don't know, I just think the writing, I think the director, I think Alfred Lynch's performance... Um, He's got a real, he's got a really sort of broken quality about him, but a sort of strange intensity as well. I think, I love the way he performs this scene. And as I say, I wasn't massively familiar with his work when when he was announced. Um, and I, and I, and I, and I, and look, I think he's got that wonderful sort of distant look in his eyes and that slightly broken quality that he has. Uh, but also, you know, he's, you know, he's intense. He's, 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 you know, he's, he's totally, he's, he's mad. Um, but, but, you know, he's, he's, he's totally committed to this terrible thing that he's going to do. And then, of course, the irony that the word is love is, uh, I, th I think there's so much in that scene that, that really works and is really effective. Um, and this that scene might be my favourite bit of the episode. Certainly what I thought it would probably be going into it. This, I feel sorry for the, the soldiers because they do get... Because, of course, the, the naffa bits always um, stuck out to me in a story that's so good. And again, look at this. If this was a... If this was in a studio, this wouldn't just have the right sort of feel of dampness in the air and the clink of the bricks. But um, the the idea that you see a you know you see an ancient vase, uh, and the question is, is it marked government property? <laughs> I mean, I th there's a way that I suppose that could be played as as, as it, it's quite a good sort of joke and gag, but it's 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 not. It's a and then he chucks it on the floor and it sort of bounces. Um, uh, I mean, these two deserve a medal, I think, for going into the sea. Go, oh, it's lovely and warm in the water, and you go, I don't think it is. I think, I think, I think every part of you has retracted and is, you, you know, you are cold, um, and that's pretty grim, isn't it? And there is something about, you know, about water. I find the sea terrifying. I've ever since Jaws, I have found. It's because you can't see. 
It's because you can't say, I remember going to, I mean, beach holidays when I was a kid, you'd cut your feet open on the, you know, you'd go into the sea and it was a, it was a minefield because there'd be rocks and you, you, you'd tear your feet open on the, on the stairs whilst going into really cold sea uh, and dodging um, jellyfish. And you go, this, this is, this is, this is the fun part of the year. Um, but there's something about the fact that you can't see. And I'm afraid ever since Jaws, I've been terrified of the sea, even though I know we don't get um, sharks in the water in the UK. And uh, that's, you know, that's uh, where, you know, where, that's where fear comes from. You know, there's no logic when it comes to fear. Logically, I know there aren't any sharks in the sea. But I, I screamed in terror at the idea. I remember we were on holiday and there was a there was a bit where the sea came in and it created a sort of lake. So when the tide went out, you still had, it was, you know, it was a self-contained. It was like a big swimming pool, but outdoors that, you know, this cove that had sort of been filled by the sea. So, you know, the tide was out as well and there were loads of people. And, and I thought, well, I can swim across that. And I got in. And I remember absolutely losing it. And going, no, there's a shark, there's a shark, there's a shark. Uh the things that we remember that make wake us crimson with embarrassment. Um, oh, and this is this is a lovely device because um, there's something rather archaic about the ticker tape, but it also means it sort of takes a bit of time. But the noise gives it a bit of a- atmosphere as well. I, I love the way he says the lines as well. Uh, all these lines as well. The sort of the scientific zeal that he has. Um, and that's a good line. It can translate it, but who knows what it might mean. But um, there's, you know, there's something about the feeding of that information out that is that is, you know, again just adds to the sort of drawing out the tension and the spookiness. Um, now it's interesting. I hated these two vampires when I was a kid, um, and I think it's because. I, I want my monsters RP and there is absolute received pronunciation, you know, like 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 what I talk. Um, uh, and, you know, it was always a joke that st- store in Invasion of Time had been Cockney, you know, we will fight you on your own ground, Doctor. Um, and that and that you don't you don't expect monsters to have an accent. Now, that's entirely theatrical convention and social conditioning. That uh, and you know I, I know Philip Hinchcliffe you know is is, a, is is not a fan at all of monsters who speak in Shakespeare and that's great you see that's absolute proper Doctor Who a man is lured into the sea and I like the way that they sort of look and they sort of enjoy that and go oh we've just done a sexy death thing but I hated them at the time I think because you know I I I, I suppose I didn't identify that sort of cockney thing with being being seductive um and they're supposed to be you know they're supposed to be um you know seducing him into the water and i don't think you could do that with cockney accent which is utter snobbery on my part and i'm sure a sexy cockney could easily seduce me so i don't know what i'm talking about um but but i i found them a real issue with the story at the time now and actually watching it this time around going to that i think they perform it very well i mean i think stoically too i mean just the sheer practical thing of of being in the water but they they don't stick out in the way that they that they they were really problematic for me when you know when i watched it i hated the scenes with them um and i like the way he says shut up um he's brilliant actually dinsdale landon 
uh, he's uh, did I, I did I say uh, yeah and that's that's nice for Ace as well because of course she knows her stuff because she's from our time so uh, you know her maths and scientific knowledge and all that sort of thing is is much more advanced than you know even the the, most, the cleverest people uh, of the 1940s that's because we are an accumulation of the knowledge and experience of of those who came before us and they're actually quite scary aren't they i mean it's it's i i this this is yeah that's very sort of stagey isn't it in in, in that it doesn't cut quite quickly enough is that they sort of you know they it's sort of like okay darlings you 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 sort of loom over her and then and cut and then john john nathan turner's dog in the background and it doesn't it's a little bit stagey and i i think the long nails are perhaps um a vampiric addition too far um sort of thing that might look better on film uh, they yeah they just look a bit yeah um and and poor old miss Hardik. so that's the end of janet henfrey who is a very who always plays these sort of harridans and she's a very lovely woman and of course she has a brilliant um claim to fame in that she she played a terrible school teacher in two dennis potter pieces nigel barton and singing detective many years apart practically doing the same sort of scene and of course she turned up in mummy in the orient express so she's done old and new who bless her and uh, that part, I know June Hudson, the costume designer who is now an actress, um, was also up for, but Janet Tenfrey got it. This is a very nicely directed scene. Yes, Nick Mallet, the guy who directed The Mysterious Planet and Paradise Towers. Where have you been hiding yourself? Um, you know, the mist is beautiful. The fact it's in a graveyard, the, the, the lovely addition of the smoke, uh, you know, the decision to have... Parsons facing us with them behind him. Uh, you know, it's it's all this is all terrific stuff. He's great. He's great. And then you know, McCoy comes in, all fiery, righteous, time lord indignation. This is good. You know, he's not always great at the at the at the high drama, but actually he's he he does he does that very well. Yeah, I I, I yeah I, I I'm not sure those nails are doing. Well, actually, I don't. Again, I don't mind them as much as I once did. Um, I like the way they turn in unison, and the music sort of scores that as well. That's very good. Uh, there's a lot of attention to detail. I think everybody knows that they're that they're onto a good thing here, uh, and, and and everyone's you know pulling out all the stops. And of course, Mark Ayres is the is the musician uh, who is. Uh, is this Mark's first one? Mark is an absolutely terrific chap. He's done so much great work for sound restoration and guarding the archive of the Radiophonics Workshop. But, you know, much like uh, uh, Nicholas Parsons, I'm sure, you know, you go, Mark, you're such a brilliant sound restorer and guardian of the archive, and he's been very helpful on any anybody who's got a project, with, you know, that involves a bit of sound. Um, knows how helpful Mark has been. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure Mark has, Yes, but I would remind you, I'm a very good musician too, and he is a very good musician too. And uh, I love this this particular theme as well, which is uh, is it quite is it quite John Carpentery? I think people have said. Um, but I, I any I, this monsters rising from the sea and the genius of the Hemovores as well, of course, is that they're in you know sort of old 
period costumes that have got whelks and knots and carbuncles all sort of grown on on them and their faces and their so they're you know they 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 do look a bit sort of zombie like I I I actually really like the ones with hair um, hair doesn't always work on monsters but because it, it, it looks like they were once human and that they've sort of mutated under the sea and there's you know there's some pleasing uh, pleasing genuine mud as well because it's a very wet it's a sort of very wet story isn't it there's loads of rain and and it, and it gets, feels sort of visceral and everything um, Doctor yeah great and that's a lovely camera it's not quite the sort of crash zoom of the Colin it's more of a sort of uh, it's, it's, it's more of a sort of uh, track in but at speed and i think that's ah and and i didn't i didn't quite press the button in time to uh to to to, to. can i can i can i resume no watch again so i've i'm afraid i've i've lost the credits which is a shame because i like watching the credits it's part of the program but i was too busy talking about trying to invent a term for that camera move that i don't know the official term for but it didn't seem like a crash zoom for me it was because it went round slightly as well so it was more of a sort of arc in just again a little bit of attention to detail that just makes just makes it you know even the things that doctor who normally does i would say this story does just a little bit better um i think it's great and actually the things i i mean the things that i wasn't wild about the first time round the two cockney vampires i do, you know i i love janet henfrey she's a very very nice woman and she's had an illustrious career behind her but miss hardake is a, a a tricky character um you know the sort of the 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 honorable spinster saying you know what you know don't don't go down to this you know I, i'm going to try and make the sea a metaphor for sexual intercourse and i'm going to do it in an intransient way um is uh, you know it's a it's a it's a definitely a worthwhile thing to be attempting and quite grown up for doctor who but i i'm not sure it quite hangs together because the kind of lines she's given um you know are a bit from the the sort of um you know stereotypical harridan handbook uh, and also you know she has to speak in kind of metaphor because you know it's it's doctor who um Although I speak, you know, the, the the real character in those days that you know she wouldn't have been explicit in her because because people didn't talk about things explicitly in those days. I don't know. It it's yeah. I it's a it's it's a sort of shrill note that doesn't it is not necessarily an easy watch in a way. And despite the fact that you know the intent behind it is good and um, uh, you know every you know everybody doing it has talent it just it just doesn't and, and you know sometimes you can throw all that stuff together and it still doesn't quite work you know I have to be honest that that yeah that's a slightly that's a bit that doesn't quite work for me I so I wasn't sorry to see Miss Hardacre get killed which is terrible those things you can only say when watching television where you know, I didn't mind when they got killed I was quite pleased when they got killed um uh, and the Prozorov thing, I sort of talked myself out of that as I was saying it, but I remember it puzzling me at the time. And and I hadn't realised it was him that was being lured. I, I hadn't quite worked out which Russian was which, um, which is a shame because the Russians are my sort of, you know, I, I always really liked it when they went back to the Russians. I want, you know, I wanted to see what was going on with those guys more than with, say, the Cockney vampires. But actually, I thought the scene where they lured him in, I thought... Joanne Kenny and Joanne Bell actually did that very well. I do like the bit where he's pulled under and then cuts back to them and they're going, oh, yeah, we sexy vampire death. Um, 
and that you know pulling pulling him under the water and then the shot of him from beneath with the air bubble in his mouth that's pretty grim stuff i, lo- I love all the watery stuff you know setting it by the beach and of course whitby was where dracula came dracula came ashore and all of that sort of stuff so it's a vampire story even though actually the monsters are kind of zombies uh, so that's that's quite handy because you've got the, the you know the tropes and the iconography and the imagery of of both which is which is super um uh, oh and yeah and the scene with the the scene with the uh the the the, un, the unbreakable pot that hasn't got government property on it but even that you know that scene with those two guys with their you know with their shirt sleeves rolled up and it you could feel the damp you can hear the clink of the brick the fact that we were on location you know even makes a scene like that that would have you know probably been a bit polystyrene and a bit and a bit you know studio echoey uh you know just feels a bit bit more real you know and that helps them seem more like soldiers you know so it's it's firing on all cylinders and and as i say the bits that i was so acutely aware of because i was such an embarrassed teenager um uh, you know that have have sort of smoothed their way into it a bit more than maybe they had uh when you know when anything anything that wasn't quite my cup of tea stuck out and you know vexed me in the same way really as that you know when i was a kid you know it was 60s and 70s who and then 80s who was a bit of a you know was a didn't didn't quite fit in with the rest of it because it was the stuff that I watched, so not as good as the stuff that had come before me. Whereas now, of course, I you know I think Eighties uh, Who, you know, is is a, is a part of that whole of the classic series and has, you know, has an equal amount of things I love and and actually as I get older, things I the things I don't forgive as with every era, especially doing this project, um, seem blissfully unimportant and i just go well it's fine it doesn't matter um and it's a, it's a much more enjoyable way to watch the show i have to say so i yeah i loved all of that i thought all of that was good but i do think my favorite thing uh is um alfred lynch poisoning some <laughs> pigeons <laughs> if i'm gonna put it like that um is that wonderful scene uh, of uh, even though it's a shame because you know all, the, all those cylinders look like they've been sort of vac formed t- together, um, which which is a which is just a slight little thing. It's the sort of thing that if I was what I knew if I was watching it with my brothers they'd point out. But actually, you know the the, the set design is you know the feel of the thing is you know it, it does feel like you're in a in a in a real space and it does feel there is a there is a there is a sense that this is a this is a you know a vast complex that all sort of fits together in a way that not all doctor who stories can can uh, can always achieve so never mind that this is all good but yeah i think that scene i think the music in that scene is great i think the writing of that scene is great and i think uh alfred lynch absolutely p- pitches it perfectly he's uh, you know he's uh, He's obviously very, very committed to the cause um, and uh, frighteningly so. But he's not playing it as sort of hard-nosed evil villainy. He's, uh, you know, he's he's got a far away look in his eyes and he's obviously a very damaged person. But, you know, he still, you know, gets the irony of that, you know, that that punchline of, you know, what, what the word is that's going to activate 
the booby trap that's going to cause all that horrible, vile death. Uh, which and and you know that makes a virtue of the wartime setting that that, that Alan talked about last week. Of you know we of course we're the goodies in the war. You know and history tells us you know that you know f- f- you know we've we've fought against fascism and did a good thing and saved the world from you know being consumed by a you know terrible terrible regime. But you know this story, even though it's you know kiddies tea time telly kind of thing although no it's later than tea time by this stage but still you couldn't be can't be too adult with doctor who he goes well yeah but let's look at let's look at what we think of about the morality of war and even you know a conflict that we we had to win and history is thankful to us for winning uh you know moral compromises have to be made and what do we think about that and you know this is worth just chewing over even though we can't do anything about it it's worth just chewing over that you know goodies and baddies is slightly is slightly more complicated in real life um but and i just love that scene i think everything about that scene is it's one of those scenes that again you could you could have just given that information in a couple of lines but it becomes a set piece scene that is you know really quite startling uh because of because you know you 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 watch the birds being killed and you know Millington, Millington then has you know n- no problem with you know imagining that on a grander scale and with people no offense to the pigeons uh and it's uh, yeah it's beautifully written beautifully acted wonderfully scored excellently directed my kind of and the sort of scene you can only really get in doctor who as well uh I don't know, or and and yet quite unlike your usual Doctor Who scene, it's it's taken a bit of thought to put that scene in and make it that way, and and, and it makes it a, a, a superb scene. I love it. So I'm going to choose that scene where Millington poisons the pigeons. Uh, what is Alan's favourite bit of the Curse of Fenric episode two? Episode two. Uh, do you know what the possessed girls? They absolutely terrified me as a kid. It wasn't the Hemovores so much because they're just baddies, but it was the possessed girls. It was the fact that they can turn you into these creatures. It was sort of like my probably my first introduction to a kind of the faculty invasion of the po- uh, the um, body snatchers, pod people sort of idea. So uh, yeah, I thought that was really scary. And the way they fiddle with their fingernails when they come for Mrs. Heaven creep me out. So yeah, I'm gonna go with them. Now, isn't that interesting? The thing that I, because I'm a little bit older than Alan, the the bit that was sort of it was long fingernails down a blackboard for me, uh, and, and and the element that I you know I I, I struggled with as a touchy f- teenager uh, were for a ki- kid who you know not unlike me in in many many ways, but a bit younger, but you know similar sort of personality. Um, they were the bit that really got him and really spoke to him and terrified him and did what Doctor Who needs to do to him. So that's another sign of, you know, a story working very cleverly because there were bits that, you know, I really latched onto. I loved loved all the military stuff. I loved the Russian stuff, it being by the sea, you know, the, 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 the intrigue and, um, you know, moral dilemmas at the core of the, the, the sort of wartime stuff. Uh, and he's going, no, no, it's because they were nice. You know, they were nice cheeky girls. 
and uh, now they're you know possessed horrible vampires and you know that that's another philip pinchcliffe thing wasn't it of going you know you 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 actually get an actor and you and you get them to act the monstrous stuff because that's better than a than, than somebody stuck in stuck behind rubber or whatever very good very good so that's you know that just goes to show that while i was cringing through those bits you know not 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 that far away uh, watching on another telly uh, you know a few hundred miles away was somebody not not much younger than me uh, whose whose cringes were those of fear so i'm sure i will discuss some of these issues with andrew cartmel who i haven't spoken to yet so um excuse me while i pop off to the future and see what the script editor of this story has to say and what his favourite bit of episode two of The Curse of Fenric is. So, uh, episode two, uh, I'm just trying to think uh, what... uh, So, ah, right, yes. Now, this was very interesting because I changed my view on some of The Curse of Fenric watching it this time, and this is the joy about revisiting stuff. One of the things I'd, I'd thought hadn't worked for me as a younger person was I the aesthetic of or maybe just even the sound of the cockney vampires seemed wrong to me and I'm prepared to hold my hands up and say this is probably my upbringing of rp monsters and these uh, are the girls some, some snobbery yeah and actually yeah, yeah. this time round watching them I think they're fine I think they're great and I think they're they're troopers as well but they were actually Alan's favorite thing and he's a couple of years younger than me so when I was a stroppy teenager watching it, he was he was a few years younger, and they to him were the most memorable bit because unlike the Hemovores, they were people that he'd seen as people, and now you saw them with their humanity removed, and that was the frightening thing for him. Whereas the best thing for me is the scene where Millington kills the doves and does that thing about the ciphers and it being the word love. So we both chose very different things there. I don't know if you have a favourite out of those two. Well. That reminds me that another really crucial element besides World War II Russians was the whole Turing enigma uh, approach. To the, I mean, that Ian knew a lot about that, uh, and he introduced that into the story, which I, I and that really adds a whole dimension to it. And he knew a lot about about the the algorithms. You know, he has that thing where Ace recognizes the logic problem because it's something that she's seen in school and equating those with and he knew about the vikings you know uh, and the fenris wolf all that stuff that was all from ian i mean he's a very i'm gonna give it a goosebumps he's such an eclectic mind um yeah but the other the, th- the other thing i wanted to mention was hemovores now the thing was we'd written these script when i say we Ian had written these scripts with my um help and uh, supervision and they're full of vampires. They were just full of full of vampires and lots of lovely vampires. And John freaked out, like you know, we we could. Uh, he was strange about this because he would, he sort of sometimes had a bit of a tin ear. Like he would have stuff on the show which was incredibly brutal and offensive, and not and you think, oh, that's fine. An example would be um, Vengeance on Varus. <laughs> yeah. Does anybody remember <laughs> when the guys fall into the acid bath and the doctor says, oh, don't mind if I don't join you or something like that? Anyway, yeah, ter- yeah. So, so John would let stuff like that through and, you know, then he'd be surprised when it was blowback from it. But on the other hand, he'd read the word vampire in a script and he'd flip out because he thought, you know, it would get us into deep shit because, you know, too scary and all that. And so, I mean, that's nonsense. But, it, you know, he was in charge. So, 
I talked to Ian about it. We we agreed we're not going to change anything except for the word vampire. And Ian came up with the word hemovore, blood eater. And just just I think it just did a global search and replace of vampire for hemovore. And that was it. And that was fine. I mean, we did exactly the same thing with uh, Silver Nemesis. It was full of Nazis. It was full of Nazis. And John was like, oh, we can't have that. I don't know why you can't have Nazis. <laughs> I mean, these were uh, uh, Nazis du jour. They were nouveau Nazis, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, whatever you call those. Um, but so we just did this thing where we changed the word Nazi to paramilitary. And that was it. That was all we did. So when uh, anyway, it's just to me, it strikes me as just foolish. But if that's 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 what if you know, if a Nazi has to become a paramilitary or a vampire has to become a hemovore, that's a small price to pay. But yeah, the, all that Bletchley Park stuff, all that Enigma Alan Turing stuff, was also really wonderful. I, I wonder if it's because they evoke other more in inverted commas existing adult drama. So Nazis are from you know you know, quite grown up films and vampires are from universal horror movies, whereas a lot of Doctor Who stuff, Doctor Who's, isn't it curious that World War II is such a dramatic setting and yet Doctor Who hadn't done World War II up to that point. Vampires, you've got them in state of decay, but that was the first time, you know. Were we Doctor seriously the first Doctor Who World War II story? That's yep. incredible. Seriously, yeah. whoa. Yeah. And, that, and then... We did it in a very different way. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. We did World War II in a completely un, from a completely unusual angle. I had no idea, Toby. I mean, I just assumed that it was one of the periods that had been strip mined in earlier stories. You would think, wouldn't you? And no, it's 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 really curious. Um, uh, and of course, uh, he, he came up with the name Hemovore because that's in a little-known Chekhov play. Actually, that's that's what. No, it's not really. <laughs> <laughs> you had me. Yeah, it's the name of a sad. It's the name of a sad landowner. Yeah, he's Mister uh, Mister Hemovore. Um, no, it's uh, but you know, it's a it's a it's a good wheeze, isn't it? Um, uh, but but yeah, there is something about a vampire, about a blood drinker, that seems a bit more visceral than your your normal Doctor Who monster. Maybe mm. that's it. Um, yeah, I, I have no idea what, what the thinking was, but that's as plausible uh, an explanation as any. Well, I'm glad I was able to come up with a plausible explanation. I'll probably come up with more of those than I will points, as is usually the case with happy times and places. But hey, it's not the winning, it's the taking part that counts. And we have an additional person taking part this time around, the script editor of the story. I'm really thrilled about that and grateful to Andrew, who'll be back next time. Well, thank you ever so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydock. My special guest this time around is Alan Lear, and we are both joined by Andrew Cartmel, former script editor of Doctor Who. Thanks to them both, and to the patrons who make these podcasts possible. And they include Andrew Jolly, Lisa and Andrew, James Lark, Guy Lambert, Clive Lewis, Ashley Knight, Andy Kitching, Jess Jokovic, Christopher Joyce, Andrew Jordan... Robert Jewell, Richie Howarth, Dave Hoskin, Legion Henderson, Paul Gregory, Fraser Gregory, David Green, Lisa C. Greco, James Gould, Paul Goodridge, Gary Gillett, Joe Ford, Mark Finley-Smith, John Elledge, Rob Dawson, Mark Dakin, John Curley, Andy Case, Paul Carrington, Paul Carnahan, Alex Kafajoglu, Robbie C., Robin Bland, Gary Byrne, Rick Byatt, Will Brooks, David Bickley, James Ball, Luke Atkins, Kevin Ashelford, John Arnold and Catherine Armitage. The music is by Dave Gates, the artwork Dylan Patterson.
Well, if you would like your name to be one of those names, all you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke, where for as little as £3 a month, you can get advanced releases, bonus releases, uh, AMAs, special exclusives, bits of ephemera I've got lying around on my hard drive. I, that, that intended to sound like, oh, funny clips or the odd, the odd memory, and it sounded like something either unpleasant or illegal or a mixture of the two it, it's n- nothing like that but it might be the odd an interview with colin baker i did when i was 13 things like that uh you know inter- yeah interviews with uh, people that i've i've not published before or photographs from events i've just been at or behind the scenes of uh, dvd extras all that sort of stuff goes on at patreon.com forward slash toby haydoke starts at three pounds a month goes up to a gazillion quid and you can get a 10 percent discount on the three pounds or the gazillion quid uh, that you spend uh, and uh, it uh, enables me to keep these advert free all these podcasts are advert free and you get the podcasts uh, well in advance of when they're released to everybody else patreon.com forward slash toby and if you can't or don't want to do a monthly thing that's totally understandable times are tough and i completely get it you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash toby if you're feeling particularly flush or there's a, an addition you've particularly thought i've deserved some virtual coffee for um, but what costs you nothing and what's really really important and helpful is if you like and subscribe to Toby Haydoke's Time Travels. If you follow the Twitter feed, at Haydoke Podcasts, I have my own, at Toby Haydoke. And if you leave reviews everywhere you possibly can, a five-star rating and a couple of lines of review really help to make these algorithms shine and glimmer in the moribund wastes of cyberspace. And it just really helps to get them noticed. And it's nice if they're noticed, because then people listen. Well, actually, the patrons will be receiving this slightly late. They normally get releases on midnight on the day of release, on a Monday, a Wednesday, and a Friday. And um, I've been, I've been consumed by Quatermass and household chores and walking the dog and making lunch for a, <laughs> can I say invalid, uh, for a poorly lady upstairs. So uh, the day has run away with me. So before it ends, I better get this out in time for the patrons. I'm hoping I haven't had a swathe of people flouncing out. I, the, my, the impression I get from everybody is that they, they get quite a lot and most people can't keep up because I do three releases a week plus a picture of my dog. Uh, on a Tuesday so that's four really but um, I like to think of that as a bonus that it's actually more popular than some of the podcasts uh, uh, so yes I uh, I stupidly spoke to a comedian called Rob Rouse during the pandemic and said how much uh, do you release uh, for your patrons and he said oh you know I give them something Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday I thought well I can't do that and you know he'll do things like he'll race his chickens or just talk nonsense to the camera because that's the sort of comic Rob is he's great by the way Rob Rouse uh, if ever you need a smile putting on your face go and see the comic Rob Rouse and he is the person that taught me all about Patreon and all about doing sort of all of this sort of thing it was during that plague when we were all locked down and uh, Rob decided to bring stupid joy to the people who enjoyed his work uh, and I decided to bring Doctor Who Arcana that could be produced without the assistance of anybody else and from my own home and that's what this is Um, but now the plague has gone but I'm afraid my podcasts still linger